Welcome to the Ben Don't Break podcast. I'm Aaron Schweitzer, your host, along with Central Oregon's best reporter, Laurel Bronze, in honor of our best of issue hitting the stands uh, last week. This podcast is powered by The Source Weekly, Ben's locally owned newspaper. Today, our guest is Ed Keith, county forester for Deschutes County since 2012. He's originally from Nevada. Ed has a bachelor's degree in forest management from Utah State University and worked seasonally as a firefighter with the U.S. Forest Service in Washington and Idaho while going to school. He then moved to Oregon in 1997 and worked as a forester for the Oregon Department of Forestry in Tillamook, Prineville, and eventually Sweet Home, where he managed fire protection for over 450,000 acres in Lynn County before starting work for Deschutes County as the forester in 2012. Works with communities to make them fire safe and fire resistant through outreach, education, and implementation of fuel reduction projects, and coordinates with local, state, and federal agencies and private landowners to achieve shared goals such as reducing the risk of wildfire. We feel very lucky to have such an appropriate guest for our conversation on the podcast today, given what's going on in our state. Ed, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. So, Ed, how did you become interested in forest management? You've been in it for quite a while. I have, yeah. And uh, when I first um, started college, I, I actually didn't uh, hadn't quite made that decision yet, but uh, got to thinking about the fact that uh, you know it was going to be a substantial part of my life, and I wanted to do something that I was going to enjoy. And uh, and uh, forestry looked like like the the thing that was going to uh, really be engaging and interesting and, and uh, not just, uh, you know, sitting in an office or uh, things like that, you know, being out in the woods and um, all the things that involve, that are involved in forestry were really intriguing to me. And so that's why I ended up going down that path. That's great. But so you hold the title of forester, uh, which could have many different meanings. What, uh, what is a forester? Yeah, it, it sure does. And I, I mean, I think back through some of those uh, jobs that you just described, and, and they were all somewhat different. Um, and, you know, the forester can be anything from uh, somebody that that plans or oversees timber sales, uh, somebody that, uh, that um, works on reforestation, uh, somebody that does, helps plan um, tree thinning and, and, and fuel reduction work. And that's really what a lot of my career has been focused on is how fire interacts with forests and how we can manage forest, uh, for better fire outcomes. I know we think of foresters with national, at a national level, um, national forests, but for a county, how does a county have, why does a county have a forestry position? Yeah, the the, uh, the position with Deschutes County is fairly unique. Uh, there are several other county foresters in Oregon, uh, but most of them are actually uh, there to um, plan timber sales and create revenue for the county. And Deschutes County uh, is completely different. Uh, the fact that we a couple hundred thousand people here that are uh, living in a county that it has a lot of wildland fuel and a lot of fire. Um, the county decided to create a position that would really focus on um, 
on you know reducing risk to those communities, uh, sure. managing forests, and assisting communities in uh, fuel reduction and and uh, you know better living, uh, living better with fire. I guess I'd say. Well, and that kind of brings us to today. Um, what I, I think one of the questions that you know certainly social media and the internet is full of right now is. Um, why are all these fires burning at once? Why, I mean, I've certainly lived here, you know, for a long time and I've seen forest fires, but I've just never seen the number of forest fires nor the geographical spread. Sure. Um, yeah, it, it has been an interesting week uh, to say the least. Uh, it's gonna be, uh, you know, one for the history books for sure. And, uh, it is quite amazing the the geographical spread of these fires. Um, so that, you know, at a lot of times when a when a complicated problem comes up, you can't just point at one particular thing, right? Sure. Uh, it's right. due to a lot of things. Um, so you know, I, I would say uh, a combination of a few things that come to mind are uh, you know long term drought, um, the fact that we went into this year with somewhat normal snowpack but came off fairly quick. Um, We've had an extended period this summer where we've seen really no precipitation at all. Um, um, and then we had a really unique uh, cold front combined with east winds. So that, you know, those are all weather components. Um, I'd also say, uh, you know, looking back longer term, our the history of both fire management and forest management has 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 contributed to. Um, the, the fire spread that we've seen as well. So, um, you know, due to 100, 110 years of very successful fire suppression, our forests are much more continuous than they would have been in the past. And so that has uh, us also led to this, you know, these larger scale fires on the landscape. Um, and of course, you know, we do see a lot of ignitions that people, a lot of people um, that aren't watching this on a day-to-day -day basis probably don't even know about. We have hundreds of fires every year, um, sure. but it, it just so happened that uh, we we had several fires that were already out on the landscape burning that weren't weren't quite caught yet when this weather event happened, uh, and then we had a weather event that created a bunch more ignitions. Um, you know, reports coming out, including one I just saw in the last couple hours, um, uh, linking some of the ignitions to power line uh, failures uh, due to down trees and things like that. So lots more ignitions than what we had the capacity to catch all at once. Um, and then just overall kind of lack of resources. There are already all these fires on the landscape. There are fires in other parts of the country, including uh, California that were already uh, draining our resources. Um, and so all those factors kind of combine to align to create kind of a, I guess, a perfect storm for um, these fires to, to spread uh, very rapidly and be very difficult to catch. Ed, what did you mean when you said um, that the combustible fuels had formed a continuous um, I forget how you said it, but a continuous area so that these fires could burn over several different areas. Sure. Um, yeah, a little bit more detail there. It, you know, in, in the past, and I'm talking like, you know, 
thousands of years of, of fire history, um, without suppression, we would have seen uh, fires burning all over uh, Oregon. And those might have burned for a little while and then maybe run into an old historic burn and, and burn their way out. Or um, uh, with fire suppression, really all the, all the patchiness that we could have seen in our forests in the past is kind of filled in, right? Uh, that yeah. all that growth continues. Every time we put out a fire, that's, that's growth that would have been burned and maybe created a smaller opening is, and, you know, now the mosaic that we might've seen on our landscape is really more, uh, a lot, a lot more fuel that carries that fire over a larger area, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about like how these start and like why they start? Because I hear a lot about, oh, it's power lines and then it's lightning strikes and then it's campers. Antifa. Then we hear it's, it's Antifa. Antifa. <laughs> right? <laughs> so, yeah, like which is it? <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, I, I can, you know, from a statistical standpoint, you know, we, we, there's a lot of data out there on fire causes. So um as for Oregon as a whole, I, I think we sit, you know, in round numbers, somewhere around 80% human-caused fires, 20% lightning-caused fires. And that, that really varies depending on the geography of the state that you look in. So in eastern Oregon, the, the percentage may be closer to 50-50 lightning to human-caused fires. In western Oregon, it might be closer to 90 or 95% human-caused fires. They don't experience as much lightning. There's lots more humans, so that, that would be the logical outcome you would expect. Um, our top three causes of fires or categories of fires uh, that we see, the number one cause of human-caused fires is actually escape debris burns, and that's the reason behind uh, not allowing debris burns during the hottest and driest times of the year, and that's why you're seeing all these fire bans. Uh, currently, and, and that's why we go into a, a no-burning uh, approach starting in, in June most years in Central Oregon to prevent those debris burns from getting away. Uh, the second uh, category is equipment. Equipment is really broad, but it includes everything from um, uh, your um, power lines going down to, a, you know, a railroad, uh, a car that might catch on fire, um, uh, dragging tow chains, those sorts of things. And then this, the third co uh, category of human-caused fires, most prevalent human-caused fires are related to recreation. So um, all, you know, all human-caused fires are, at least in theory, preventable. And, and that's where most of our fires are caused from. Uh, although we do experience, um, you know, a fair amount of lightning, especially in the Cascades and and further east in eastern Oregon. And a couple of the fires that did grow large were already ongoing and were caused by lightning. Ed, as a, as a forester, do you have enforcement powers? Like if you, if you find the Yahoo thinks it's a good idea to do a burn in July, like what are your recourses for that? I, myself, I do not. Um, I've had, I've held positions in the past where, uh, uh, a, a part of the position was enforcement of fire prevention rules. Uh, and certainly there are uh, plenty of people out there that do enforce those rules. Uh, primarily, uh, those are um, enforced by the Oregon Department of Forestry, 
the U.S. Forest Service and the BLM, depending on jurisdictions. Um, and they issue those, um, uh, you know, fire prevention rules uh, on a yearly basis, usually starting in June, and they run through October. Uh, and they, they can carry a fine. The, the more serious thing uh, for people to think about is the liability that they might hold. Uh, the fine could be relatively small, and a lot of times you're going to get a warning if it's your first time and you weren't, maybe weren't aware. Um, but the, the, the liability is really where it gets serious. So if, you're, if you cause a fire and that, um, you know, burns down structures or, or uh, kills somebody or causes, you know, large expenses in putting the fire out, you could be liable for, for those costs. So getting into a little bit of terminology, um, we hear a lot about fires being contained, 5% uh, contained, et cetera. Can you describe what that actually means? Sure. <laughs> yeah, you'll, uh, you'll commonly uh, hear the containment number that's reported every day for the larger fires. And uh, the containment uh, number essentially represents the, you know, if you drew a line around a fire and you know in some of these fires they might have three or four hundred miles of fire line that needs to be built to contain that fire uh, so a fire team is looking at the amount of not only the amount of line that's been built to contain the fire but also uh, the amount that the fire manager is going to expect to reasonably hold so uh, you know right now we're seeing a lot of fires that are uh, contain maybe 3%, 8%, a couple of them are 20%. Um, the one down by Phoenix yesterday actually reached 100% containment. Um, but uh, so that, that's basically representing the, the, uh, the proportion of the line that um, has not just been built, but can reasonably expect to, to withstand you know, a wind event or, or you know, has been mopped up or um, has enough uh, fire hose around it to uh, hold that fire from spreading back across that line. Great. Um, can you go into a little bit of the history of the forests in Central Oregon? Um, just some details about how they used to act before logging and settlers came here and um, and and what the logging system and things like that have now resulted in. Sure, um, and I, I just would qualify that I'm, I, I'd speak pretty generally. So, you know, there was probably most likely a, you know, a variety of forest conditions uh, that moved across the landscape over thousands of years. But generally what, what was found and what research is reconstructed through tree ring uh, analysis and those sorts of things is that we generally in Central Oregon, especially in our ponderosa pine forests, had a you know a, a relatively open uh, setting with very large trees, uh, and and those trees were and that forest setting uh, with an open grass understory and, and relatively large trees, uh, widely spaced apart, was maintained by frequent fire. Um, and and there's a lot of actual research where people have gone back and found older trees and, and looked at the growth rings and, and reconstructed fire history. And so that's what the, that, um, you know, our knowledge about those forests has been reconstructed from that research. And, you know, what that shows us is that uh, fire 
uh, in our Ponderosa pine forest was a was a frequent visitor essentially. It visited uh, somewhere between five and twenty years on average, uh, and uh, since it was coming back so so frequently, and because um, our forests are relatively low on the productivity range, they don't grow really fast. Uh, there wasn't a lot of fuel to con be consumed by that fire, so it would, you know typically burn at a fairly low intensity. Um, that this smaller trees that would have grown up in that five to 20 year span were relatively small. They weren't very fire resistant. So fire would knock out most of those. It would probably burn in a, in a mosaic like pattern. So, you know, you might have a, a, a clump of trees that would grow up in one spot, but another clump that would get burned uh, and, and go back and re revert to grass. But uh, that fire, um, you know, helped maintain a, you know, those relatively large trees with thick bark weren't vulnerable to fire. And so they withstood, um, you know, several hundred years of fire and actually, you know, their health was maintained by that because in central Oregon, we're really limited by our moisture that we have available to these trees to be able to grow, right? So the less trees, the, the longer they're gonna be able to live because they can live through droughts and things like that. Um, I would say also, prior to European settlement. Another thing to remember is that our, uh, in addition to the lightning caused fires, um, the, the indigenous people that were here helped maintain that through the use of fire, both for, um, you know, the production of their food or herding animals or just maintaining their, their, their forest lands where they either visited or lived. So that's an important component to remember as well is that there's a history of fire, both natural, but also humans uh, that uh, maintained a, a regular uh, use of fire. Um, and then as Europeans started to settle, of course, you know, one of the things that helped build Bend and other communities throughout Oregon was logging. Um, and so we came in and harvested a lot of those large trees. Um, at the same time, um, we started to employ, you know, very effective fire suppression uh, to try, you know, fire was, you know, seen as a threat to communities and to the, the timber resource and, and, uh, and was, you know, largely settled on a model of using fire, you know, excluding fire from forest because it was bad. Um, and then in addition, um, and you don't see this as much anymore, but, you know, there was a fairly large component of grazing. A lot of sheep were used in central Oregon and that really, um, also, uh, I guess, helped with that fire exclusion model because they were eating all that grass and all that understory that would normally be the, the carrier of that fire. And so we really, um, basically through logging and grazing, um, stopped fire from maintaining our forests and taking out those small trees and burning at a lower intensity. Um, and of course then, you know, over the 100, 110 years, of fire exclusion, uh, those small trees have kind of filled in the understory of our of our forests and uh, kind of created that more continuous fuel like I was talking about before that really carries a much more intense fire through uh, it, it through some forests anyway, uh, like we're seeing today. And Ed, so given that um, it doesn't seem like there's any trend. I mean, I know we do some controlled burns, but 
obviously by the scale we're seeing today, we're not doing enough. With the with people moving and, and bend expanding the way it is, I mean, the pressure is constantly on pushing into that um, wildland urban interface. What, for someone like yourself in this position as the forester for Deschutes County, what does that bode for the future? Sure. Yeah, and you know, um, part of the communities we have in our what we call our wildland urban interface are kind of inherited from the past, bef from before the times where we really saw wildfire impacting our communities, and then and then we have what uh, is you know either yet to come. Laurel, did he just? I think. Yeah. Can you repeat that, please, Ed? Oh, did I freeze up? Yeah. Sorry. I'm still getting an unstable. I'm just gonna, okay. Here we go. Sorry about that. Um, so, you know, I think we have uh, a couple different uh, uh, approaches for, you know, communities that are encroaching or or living in what we call the wildland or urban interface. We have communities that we've kind of inherited from before this time of more intense fires um, that were were built without really any thought or even really knowledge that fires would be burning at the scale that we're seeing them today. Uh, and then we have our, our newer communities that are either being built right now or being planned in the future. You know, and for our inherited communities, I think we're really trying to, I guess I'd say retrofit those for today's reality. And that's, um, that's a lot of the work that I do is trying to uh, get those communities uh, thinking about how they can reduce their fuels, create defensible space, um, you know, and, and live in the, in, in the location that they already are, but in a, in, a, in a safer way. And then of course we have communities that are now being built or plan to be built. Um, a couple that I would point to um, that have been built with fire in mind, um, are communities like the tree farm on the west side of Bend off of Skyliners Road, as well as the uh, the new what we're calling west side transect zone. Uh, and those were uh, built um, as kind of, I would, I guess I would describe those as sort of a buffer between uh, the city of Bend and the, the undeveloped wildland further to the west. The idea that um, these communities are are at risk of being impacted by fire and so they need to be built with that in mind and that right. that uh, goes for everything from building materials uh, access and egress routes that are you know that you have multiple options for evacuating the community or getting emergency responders into the community um, that there's mandatory defensible space uh, that there's there are appropriate plants and then not appropriate plants to be used for landscaping um, and uh, that those lands uh, around the community need to be maintained with fire in mind. So, uh, you know, with uh, regular uh, fuel reduction and maintenance of that fuel reduction. Um, and so I, I think we're doing a, um, a much better job. And I think there is a balance to be struck uh, just because of the, the pressures of uh, the available land we have to build and afford, you know, the taking into account trying to create places for, for people to live and communities to expand, but also keeping in mind that we live in a fire adapted forest and that our communities need to be built in the safest 
manner possible. So using, you know, the best available science on defensible space, as well as, uh, you know, building materials like siding, roofing, uh, decking, uh, vents, all those sorts of things can, if incorporated all together, are, are really the recipe for trying to build the, the safest community possible. And the, the tree farm is a Brooks resource of development, is it not? And, it is. and my understanding is that they got out pretty far in advance with, with the county on um, how to create that development in a way that they would be that buffer. I'm sure those homeowners don't like being referred to as a buffer, but, uh, but nonetheless. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think, I think, uh, you know, Brooks resources thought of it really as a selling point is like, if we're going to put this community uh, in this location, uh, we need to build it safe as possible. At least that's the conversations that I've had with them. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, perhaps buffer isn't the correct term, but uh, uh yeah, we did talk with them early, and of course, it's it's much easier to build the community from the ground up with those safety considerations in mind, versus the retrofit approach where we have a community built, but the transportation infrastructure doesn't quite work, for, you know, to handle, uh, you know, the evacuation for for example, or as much more expensive to trade out your roofing or siding than to put on fire resistant roofing or siding to begin with. So right. it was good to, you know, to start those conversations early and really look at, you know, clustering those homes uh, closer together. So they, they, they could have been spread out of one house per 10 acres and they clustered them on two acre lots instead. Uh, and then they were able to actually, even before the lots were sold, start to implement fuels reduction and, actually did one prescribed fire before the lots were sold um, to try to set that community up for, um, you know, being safer before the building even started. Great. Oh, can we talk a little bit about the Deschutes Collaborative Forest Project before we let you go? If you could just sure. describe what that is and your role in it. Yeah, the Deschutes Collaborative Forest Project um, is essentially a group of community members that came together. Um, back in 2009, Congress passed a, a bill that allowed communities to propose projects um, for funding uh, that would uh, enhance goals that included uh, community safety, forest restoration, watershed protection, wildlife, habitat enhancement, those sorts of things. And uh, there, there were already several um, collaborative efforts around wildfire and community safety and some of those other goals ongoing. And so this, this was a really a natural fit. So this group formed and came up and worked kind of hand in hand with the U.S. Forest Service to come up with a proposal and a landscape that stretched uh, from Blackbeet Ranch and Sisters south to Sun River, uh, kind of in this interface area that I'm talking about next to the, the, uh, the communities. Um, to try to accomplish uh, this forest restoration work, to try to um, accomplish some thinning and brush mowing and prescribed fire to um, set ourselves up and set our forests up for uh, the fact that um, when fires happen, we have better outcomes, right? So that not the idea that we're gonna prevent every fire from happening, but we can have a fire 
and uh, it won't be so impactful in a negative way to the community. Um, and so uh, that, that group proposed the project. It did get funded uh, starting in 2010. That group received um, uh, through the Forest Service again. The Forest Service actually receives the funds and then the, the group collaborates with the Forest Service. Uh, the, so the, the group through the Forest Service received $10.1 million to fund uh, some of this work that you're seeing west of Bend, south of Sisters, um, north of Sun River, those general areas. Um, and that funded work that the, the group basically sat down at the table and, and talked about um, what I would guess I would call potentially competing interests, but what, what can we agree on uh, that as in relation to how we want our forest to look in the future? Uh, knowing that we need to use active management, uh, knowing that we're going to have fire in our forests, how can we manage our forest for these better fire outcomes? How can we keep our communities more safe? How can we create jobs? How can we protect clean water? Um, and really talking about it from the perspective of, of all the, all the um, potential interest groups in the community. That would include um, the, the timber industry, the environmental groups, local government, uh, people concerned about community wildfire protection, people representing watershed interests, wildlife, those sorts of things. Um, the Ed, idea... And do, do you get the sense that do you get the sense that people do now acknowledge that there will be fire in the forest in the future? I mean, because, you know, that whole philosophy of suppression has been in place for so long. And, and even, I think to this day, you would see people say, well, you know, if that fire starts, we're going we're gonna to put it out immediately. I mean, they don't look at it as an, or, or maybe they do, and that's what I'm looking for. Do you feel like that's becoming more a natural part of the conversation is like you look at a forest that hasn't burned and you say, well, it's going to burn pretty soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I certainly have a lot of those conversations. Uh, it might not be on everybody's mind, but I, I would hope that it uh, would be coming up in conversations. Uh, and I, I think that was the realization with the collaborative was we are going to have fire in central Oregon. Uh, it's been here for thousands of years and it's not going away, but how can we manage our forests uh, for a way that when those fires happen, people don't get killed, homes don't burn, uh, and and fires burn at low enough intensity where we still have a nice green forest, you know, and, and uh, it comes back in a relatively short amount of time. And, and so I, I think more people are realizing that. I think that's still a conversation to be had with the larger community is, um, realization that we can't suppress every fire. Uh, there's just not enough resources or enough money uh, when these firestorms happen to stop every single one. So we really have to set our forests up to be able to receive fire so that it burns in a better way. Uh, and again, doesn't kill people, burn down communities. Uh, and do know. you feel do you feel like there's enough funding right now for controlled burn programs? I mean, I know controlled burns happen, but I, I mean, when I look at the scope of the land that's that's gone to fire, I think those 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 um, those ones were burning to seem awfully small. Sure, uh, they are, and so we are trying to do those in a very strategic manner. <laughs> um, 
And, uh, you know, if you could see a map of the West Bend area, for example, the idea is to try to start to piece those together. And we have started to piece together those units. They are relatively small for a variety of reasons. One is limitations of funding. Another is um, trying to not impact the air quality so we don't have air quality like we do out there today that's unhealthy for people. So we can only burn units that are a certain size uh, so we don't put too much smoke in the air. We are limited on resources and, and money to implement those. Uh, we're limited from a weather standpoint. There's only certain times of the year where we can implement those that, are, that it won't burn too hot and it won't, you know, or if right. there's snow on the ground, obviously it won't burn at all. So there's several limitations. Um, so I, I'd say, you know, we really need to implement those in a strategic way, starting close to the community, uh, which may be hard for some people to accept. Why are we burning this forest right next yeah. to the community? We want a nice, beautiful forest next to our community. But that's really where we need to start doing this work is, is next to the values that we really want to protect. So when a wildfire comes, we have, you know, a, a, a chance and a safe place for firefighters to defend those values, including including the community. I mean, I know when there's um, the controlled burns, and this is one of the things I'd be looking to you for regarding the barometer of public perception. I mean, you, your office must get lit up. I know our, our phones here at the newspaper get lit up with people are like, oh my gosh, they're burning. Why are they burning now? There's, there's smoke in the air. And um, where, you know, that has to start subsiding a little bit with an understanding of, well, of course it's burning. It's never burned before, so it's going to burn at some point. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting. We have done some public opinion polling, and we, we try to do a lot of outreach here to try to explain to people why there is smoke in the air. Um, there's a there's a pretty good acceptance from people, and, and it's you know in the upper eighty percent of people that really support the use of prescribed sure. fire. It's the smoke that really gets them. Nobody wants to breathe the smoke, and I certainly don't blame them. I don't want to breathe it either. Uh, and what we try to do when we implement those prescribed fires is pick the best day possible when most of the smoke gets blown away from the community, um, and and people are going to be impacted the least amount possible. But again, it's 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 a challenge uh, to get those fires on the ground. There's so many uh, factors that you have to take into place. And, you know, we are trying to burn closer into town and closer to communities because those are the places that we're trying to protect. So it, it is a challenge. The smoke is particularly challenging. Um, usually it's only around for a day or two with prescribed fire, with, with wildfire, typically it's, it's weeks of very unhealthy smoke. So uh, I think we do need to strike a little bit of a balance there and be, you know, somewhat accepting of smoke with the realization that fire managers are doing their best in knowing that communities don't want to breathe smoke, but we also don't want to burn the community down in, in fire season. Yeah. Well, Ed, it looks like we're out of time. I, I really appreciate you taking a break from everything that, that you have going on to tell us a little bit more about what we're all experiencing and I, I, I know I couldn't take even one more particulate of, of breathed in smoke. So <laughs> I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Ed, this has been the Bed, Ben Don't Break podcast with Laurel Bronze and Ed Keith, Deschutes County Forester. Thanks for joining.